This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of his heart, of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I did not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in the spirit of gentleness? This is God's word. Let's pray together. God, this morning I ask that you would graciously quiet our hearts. That you would clear away the distractions in our minds. And that you would focus all of our attention on this needed message from your word. We need to know what you have to say to us this morning. I pray that you would clear away my personal opinions and make me say only what you want me to say. I pray that you would cause your word to fall on willing ears who desire to know what your will is, to love you, to believe in you, and to obey. Father, we also pray for our... Uh, outreach efforts that will take place at the beginning of next month uh, at the baseball fields. We ask that you would raise up laborers to work in the field 
and to reap a harvest. And we ask that you would bring about many wonderful ministry opportunities through that time, that you would give your people boldness and love for our neighbor, and that you would cause our service to be understood as what it is, which is intended in love and affection for our community. Lord, I pray again that you would uh, just cause us to understand what you have for us from your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If someone were living 100 years ago and could take a time machine into 2023, they would be in for quite a shock, wouldn't they? Uh, Of course, after their eyes adjusted to all the digital screens and the modern conveniences and they enjoyed the Oreos and Doritos and all the other addictive wonderful snacks that we are all sort of enslaved to, I imagine that they would quickly become a little exasperated with a phenomenon that takes place all too often in modern America. I'm talking about the bewildering tendency to invite young children into the debates and the decisions normally and formally reserved for adults. Uh, You probably know what I'm talking about. You've eavesdropped on these conversations in the restaurant or in the checkout line at the grocery store. There are at the table next to you, there's this young family, mom, dad, and junior. Junior's about seven or eight years old. They're discussing where to go on vacation or whether or not to take out a home equity line of credit to renovate the kitchen. Mom and dad will be footing the bill, of course. But there's junior offering his sage advice, monopolizing the conversation with his own inflated priorities and opinions. And the craziest part, and you've seen this, haven't you? The craziest part is that mom and dad are locked in. They're listening very carefully to what Junior has to say, following up with questions to show their interest, and generally acting as though Junior's opinion about the matter is as valid as their own. When I was in children's ministry, uh, we used to take a group of kids to preteen camp every year, and it was always easy to spot those kids who had been invited to serve as a member of the board of directors of their particular family, because every single decision was assumed to be a matter of debate. It was exasperating as a camp counselor. Like, kids, we're at 2.30, we're going to meet back here at the cabin, we're going to get ready to go to the swimming pool, so make sure you grab your, sw- your towel and, and get your swimsuit on and your sunscreen, and, and we're going to do this at 2.30 p.m. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Jake, I think it might be better if we stop by the, arc- the uh, game room before we do that, since it's on the way back from the dining hall. Okay, thank you, Jimmy, for your irrelevant opinion. I will... Ignore it. In my own experience as a youngster, I had to be reminded every few months that I was not the head of our household and that I did not hold a leadership position in my elementary classroom. My mother would hear from a teacher that I was getting a little too big for my britches or she would observe it with her own eyes and she had one very simple solution. She would say, go sit on your bed until your father gets home. As far as I can remember, that strategy was pretty effective. Now, we're not even into our text yet, and already some of you are are feeling a little defensive about your choices as a parent, so I'll go ahead and make my point. If it's true for life in general that sometimes we, we need to be told to remember our place, 
then the same is true in God's church. If it's true in the family that the kids need to be told, hey, remember who you are, then the same is true, the same is the case in the church of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in this passage has been describing and prescribing uh, a solution to a specific problem in the Corinthian church, a problem most churches face, namely the problem of strife and division and quarreling in the church. People fighting with, an, with one another, lording it over one another. And he doesn't just say, stop it, stop doing that. He invites us to sort of pop open the hood and grow in our understanding of the root cause of the problem. And in our text today, all of what he's been saying in chapters 1 through 4 sort of sharpened to a very fine point. You've been quarreling. You've been separating yourself into these factions in the local church for a very specific reason. Here it is. You've forgotten not only the place that your leaders hold in the local church, in God's temple, the temple of Christ in the city of man, but you've forgotten your own position in God's economy. You're prideful and puffed up, and you need to remember your place. Don't just rethink your understanding of the church as a whole. Don't just rethink your understanding of the place of leaders in the church, like Paul or Apollos. You need to rethink your own role in God's church. Now, you probably noticed that Paul gets a little spicy, a little sarcastic in this particular passage. If you're visiting with us today, we don't always berate people here at Indian Creek Baptist Church, but sometimes a little sarcasm is warranted. Sometimes we need to see how foolish we've been. I know it's important to be encouraged and comforted and told that we're precious and that we're valued in God's family, but it's often appropriate for God to sort of take us by the chin and look us in the eye and say, look at me, remember your place. And he's going to do that by reminding us of three realities this morning. First of all, from verses 1 through 5, remember your place, you aren't the judge or the jury. Remember your place, you aren't the judge or the jury. Here in this first section, Paul invites us once again into a sort of courtroom. And the Corinthians, I I imagine, must have understood this image quite well. After all, that, that this is one of the things that they have been doing. They have evaluated, they have judged their leaders. And they've split themselves apart based on the verdict that they've rendered. This group thinks Paul is the best. This group over here thinks Apollos was the best. This other group thinks Peter was the best. But Paul reminds them that evaluating leaders isn't like arguing about whether uh, LeBron James or Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. It's It's not a casual thing. This is a serious thing. First of all, they need to remember that faithfulness is more important than flashiness. Faithfulness is more important than flashiness. How how should they think about their leaders? Paul tells them right here in verse 1, like subordinates, like servants, not of the church, but of Christ. That word means subordinate. It means assistant. He, He goes on to specify. He says, we're stewards. We talked about this several weeks ago. It's like they're household managers. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? They're not Batman, They're not Bruce Wayne. No, they're more like Alfred in God's house. And the same goes for any leader in any church. What is the most important quality in a household manager? He says in verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that he be found faithful. 
For the Corinthians, like many today, the qualities for which they judged their leaders were all over the map. I wasn't there in in Corinth, so I don't know specifically the uh, rubric through which they were evaluating Paul and Apollos, how they determined who was better than the other. But I have seen this in the present day. Haven't you seen this? The way that we evaluate our leaders often is not in accordance with the scripture. What do we want? We want a powerful preacher, right, in his mid-20s with 15 years of experience? who takes us deep into the background and the theology of the Bible and tells us things we never heard before and connects to the young children and helps them understand at their level. He needs to be a visionary who leads the congregation on mission to boldly change everything except all the things that I like. He needs to be a man of action and availability during the week and deliver polished and well-researched messages without looking at his notes that transform our understanding of scripture, and he needs to get us to the restaurant on time. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice to have someone like that? Of course, uh, I'm being tongue-in-cheek, but my point is that we tend to look for somebody flashy instead of looking for someone faithful. This is what Jesus wants. Are you faithful? Do you stay in line with what Jesus said he wants his church to be? Do you tell people what Jesus says to tell them, or do you leave out the bits that you think might make them upset? Now, if Paul had simply left it at chapter 4, verse 2, the Corinthians might have said, great, you've already told us at the end of chapter 3 that our leaders belong to the church, and now you're telling us how we ought to judge our leaders, so we'll go ahead and get started judging But he doesn't stop in chapter 4, verse 2. He goes on. He's not done because the point he's trying to make is that since the church's leaders are stewards of Christ's mysteries, and since their main requirement is faithfulness to the master of the house, then the Corinthians are not in any position to exercise any judgment at all. In other words, not only is it the case that faithfulness is more important than flashiness, but the truth of the matter is that the opinions of man do not matter in comparison with Christ's. It's required of stewards to be found faithful, not by you, ultimately, but by Jesus. Paul says with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In other words, I do not care about your opinion of me. It is irrelevant to me. A few months ago, I was in attendance at a pastor's fellowship. I think Jamie was there. Trent, I think, was there. And uh, one of the guys brought up the issue of, uh, that, that faces many pastors and people of any profession uh, that we feel inadequate and, and that we don't really measure up to the standards we've set for ourselves and that our people set for us. And he says, how do you deal with the fact that, that so often we fall short of the expectations that our church and ourselves place upon our lives. And one of the other brothers just spoke up and he said, it just doesn't matter. You have the gifts you have. You have clear instructions from the master. You just do what Jesus said to do and don't worry about what happens. My first reaction when I heard that was to think, that's kind of harsh for somebody who's struggling with discouragement. But the more I began to think about it, the more I realized how freeing it is to stop worrying about why I'm not like this guy over there and what everybody thinks of me, but simply what the master has to say. Your opinion of me 
doesn't matter. <laughs> You're all very gracious, by the way, but even if you weren't, it wouldn't make a difference because Paul says, by the way, my opinion even of myself doesn't matter. I don't know of anything against me, but that's not what acquits me. It's the Lord who judges me. So mom and dad with grown children, let me just say, your kid's opinion of you ultimately in comparison with Christ it does not matter. School teacher, your student's opinion of you ultimately does not matter. Husband or wife, your spouse's opinion of you ultimately does not matter. It doesn't define who you are. It's the Lord who judges you. By the way, teenager, your friend's opinion of you does not matter. They don't have the right to pronounce the verdict on your life, but there is someone who has the right to judge, and according to God's word, he is going to exercise that right one day. See, we don't like to think of God as a judge. We like to think of him as very nice and accepting of everyone with all of their faults and foibles, but we've created a great problem for ourselves because when we start thinking that God doesn't have an opinion or that he doesn't have an expectation, or that there won't be a day of reckoning for us, what happens is, instead of worrying about what God thinks, instead of thinking about what God's opinion is of us, we start to think about what everybody else thinks. And we need to remember that God is the judge, and that he does see everything, and that he will one day call us to account. And so then Paul drives the point home in verses 4 and 5. What's the point? What's the application? He says, so don't pronounce judgment before the time when the judge arrives and he discloses all the secrets of the hearts and he hands out his commendations to the stewards who have been faithful. If it's true that it's about faithfulness more than flashiness, if it's true that the opinions of human beings like you and me don't ultimately matter, it's the Lord who judges us, then remember your place, church. You aren't ultimately the judge or the jury. Part of living in a fallen world means that we observe injustices, right? We see wrongs, it's tempting to look at our watch and wonder, why is the judge waiting to issue justice in this matter? Why is he taking so long and instead of waiting till the day when the judge discloses all the hidden motives of the heart, we want to set it right in accordance with our tastes and we want it set it right today, Paul says, that's a mistake. Don't do it. You know, it's one thing to stand up for justice. That's not what Paul's talking about. Don't tap the brakes on that. Stand up for what's right. It's one thing to exercise discernment. You, we do have to judge and discern between this, uh, whether this is right or whether it's wrong. Paul's not talking about that. You need to do that. You need to be discerning. What is he doing? He's calling out the Corinthian believers because they had actually absolutized their own perspectives and their own priorities over the opinions of God, and they had said to the judge of all the earth, you move over, let me sit up there, and I'm going to pass judgment on my leaders and on the rest of the people here. I am the judge. And Paul says, you can't. You're not the judge or the jury. There is a judge. And one day, his judgment and his justice is going to hold sway, and you will see how wise and how just and how wonderful he is. So let me ask you a question. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe in your heart that one day the judge of all the earth will do what is right and he'll set to right the things that are wrong? 
Because this is the clear teaching of the Bible. And I want to ask you, Christian, do you really believe that's true? It's hard to believe, isn't it? Because of the things that we see in the world. But the Bible calls upon us to believe it. Do you believe that the Lord Jesus is going to return to earth, that he's going to bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and that he's going to disclose the purposes of the, of the heart, and that each one is going to receive his commendation from God? And the reason I ask that is because we so often act in the church as if we do not believe that that is going to take place. So when we share concerns with our leaders, we, say, we, we, we don't say, hey, what is Christ going to say when he returns? What do we say? You know, pastor, people are talking. People aren't going to be tithing if you do this. People are going to leave the church if you do that. Listen, I don't need help, and the elders and the, the other leaders, we don't need help being afraid of the opinions of man. We're already doing that, right? We already struggle with that. And you are the same in your family and your area of, of leadership and influence. We don't need help worrying about what people think. We need help worrying about what God thinks, we need help fearing God. And at the end of the day, you have to remember that the Lord is going to set it right, and that requires you to believe in him. You have to trust him. Remember your place. You aren't the judge or the jury. Secondly, from verses 6 through 13, remember your place. You aren't the king or the queen. Remember your place. You aren't the king or the queen. I'll explain what I mean. Last week we talked about how Paul and Apollos are just laborers in God's field, contractors in God's building. Uh, the church is nothing less than the, the near fulfillment of God's ultimate purpose, his ultimate ambition to dwell in fellowship with his people in a perfect, permanent garden sanctuary so that he might share himself with them in unbroken fellowship. The church has a high calling and and. and and, and we're, I mean, you cannot say enough good about what God's church actually is. But here Paul offers a caveat. It's true that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's true that the leaders are accountable to the master of the house. But what Paul wants to say in verses 6 through 13 is this. You, Christian, aren't really any different in this respect from the apostles and the other leaders. We're all accountable to the master of the house. In other words, it's healthy to remember that the church doesn't belong to Paul or to Apollos or to Pastor so-and-so. The church doesn't belong to the leaders, but it's also important to remember that the church doesn't belong to you as an individual Christian. It belongs to Christ. You are no different in this respect from the apostle. And Paul says, I've been talking about how I'm just a servant of Christ. I've talked about how Christ is going to judge me, and I'm telling you these things because I want you to take my example and the example of Apollos, and I want you to turn around and apply it to yourself. You are not the king or the queen. You need to learn by our example not to go beyond what is written. You say, what do you mean what is written? Well, think about everything he said in this book so far from the Old Testament scriptures. What do they amount to? This admonition, don't boast in men, boast only in Jesus Christ. Don't boast in me or Apollos, and don't boast in yourself either. Don't compare leaders, but don't puff yourself up against one another either. Look at verse 7. Who sees anything different in you? In other words, every believer has just as much reason to be humble as Paul does, don't we? 
Because every single thing that we have, we've been given. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul's saying, remember your place. So you can speak in tongues. That's wonderful. But that's a gift that God gave you so that you could serve the church. So you can lay hands on somebody and heal them. Okay, you didn't give that to yourself. That's a gift God gave you so that you could build up the church. You say, well, I've got the gift of prophecy. Paul says, you didn't give that to yourself. That's something God gave to you. So why would you boast as if you earned it when it was actually a gift? It doesn't make sense. All of your abilities, all of your wealth was given to you by the grace of God. You can preach well. You can sing well. You gave a lot of money last year. That's wonderful. But, folks, all of that was a gift from God to you to build up Christ's body in Christ's temple. Why would you boast in yourself? Boast only in Christ. I think we're going to be very surprised when Christ returns. It's not going to be the great preachers or the award-winning musicians who earn the highest commendation. I think it's going to be a lot of people that we never heard of, a lot of faithful believers who labored in prayer, many who struggled with physical and even mental disability. Have you thought about that? People who can't even barely communicate with you are so faithful to the Lord, and we don't even know about it, but God knows And they're going to receive their commendation. Young children who died with greater faith than the grieving pastors who preached their funerals. Men and women who languished in prisons in North Korea or Iran. Those with nothing to show for their faith today but who boasted in Christ alone. Do you believe that there's going to come a day when they will receive their commendation? Folks, we're going to be very surprised when that happens. Don't boast in what you have. Are we any different from them? Are we any better than them? Certainly not. Everything we have has been given to us as a gift. We need to remember our place. And it's at this point that Paul begins to get a little sarcastic. In verse 8 and following, Paul introduces a second word picture. He brings us from the courtroom to the public arena. These believers lived in a Greek city, but they were ruled by Rome, and many of them must have served a couple decades in the Roman military before moving to Corinth as it was rebuilt as a Roman colony. And so Paul accesses a very familiar word picture, a very familiar image of a Roman victory parade known as a triumph that some of his readers may very well have participated in at one point in their life. See, in ancient times, there wasn't, did you know, there, there wasn't any TV or internet. We know that, right? There was no news uh, channel that you could turn on 24 hours a day and, and learn what's going on around the world. And so how were people going to know that Rome had been victorious in battle? Well, what they would do is they would publish these uh, elaborate parades through the center of the city And uh, it was customary to to organize these great celebrations where the entire Roman Empire, everybody who could come, would gather in the middle of the city and and, uh, the, the army would march past the emperor and the senate and all the other important people seated in a grandstand and then they would lead their pack animals laden with gold and silver and then after the streets had been littered with trash and excrement the, the very last thing, the finale of the parade, would be, in the very back, the prisoners that they had captured in war. 
These surviving enemy officers would be led into an arena where they would often be tortured, humiliated, and killed to show the great power of the army. And Paul says, we apostles, we're like that. We're like the end of the procession, like those condemned to be killed and fed to the beasts. Like the scrapings from the soldier's sandals, naked, hungry, shamed, spat upon. And Paul says, believers, this is where the apostles are. We're in the back. But where are you? You think you're one of the people seated up there on a cushion. You think you're one of the kings or the queens. You think you're ruling. Hey, man, I wish you were. It'd be nice to be up there seated comfortably and not in the back of this procession condemned to die. Essentially, what he's doing is he's reminding us that our entire life as believers is built upon the reality that our real king was nailed to a cross. Do you see how foolish it is for us as believers to act as though we have arrived when the apostles of the Lord Jesus and Jesus Christ himself suffered the shame and the torture of the world? See, if your Christianity doesn't involve humility, sacrifice, suffering, inconvenience, then it is no Christianity at all. Did you hear the passage that we read earlier in the service? Jesus, I want to follow you. Okay, we'll take this one very simple, straightforward step to show that you're really committed. Ah, I don't think so. Folks, we follow a, a Savior who walked the Calvary Road. Are we going to share that path as well? Because Christianity, the real kind, was founded by a crucified Savior, and those who followed him, they didn't climb up on a throne to watch a parade. They were led up onto a scaffold to be tortured. See, the good news isn't that King Jesus figured out how to get the most out of life, and if you follow him, you can live the good life too. That is not the good news of the scriptures, guys. I don't know why you're here today. If you're here for the first time, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. I'm not sure why you came, but if you are looking for a life philosophy that will help you to be more disciplined or well-connected socially or more centered emotionally. That is not what God offers you primarily. It's not what you really need. No, the good news is that King Jesus, the Son of God, laid down his perfect life so that sinners like you and me might be declared not guilty on the last day when we stand for judgment. See, there's going to come a day when it won't matter how centered emotionally you were, when it won't matter how well-connected socially you were, when it won't matter how disciplined you were in your life, because there's going to come a day when you stand before the judge. And the most important thing you can know is whether you will be declared not guilty on that day. This is the good news. It's that Jesus was crucified, even though he was righteous himself, he takes the guilt of sinners upon himself, and he goes to the cross, takes the curse of God, so that those who earned that curse might know for sure that on the day when we stand before the judge, and, and the books are open, and all the sentences are read, that there will be no condemnation for us. See, the only thing that's going to matter, matter is whether you found righteous on the last day. And this is what Jesus did. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to understand you will never be justified. You will never be declared not guilty on the basis of the things that you've done. 
that we're talking about a holy God. We're talking about a righteous God who sees every thought, who knows every deed done in secret, and who one day is going to disclose the hidden things of the heart. The only way that we can stand not guilty on that day is if somebody takes our place as a substitute. And the only person that can do that is Jesus Christ. This is why Paul, going back to the beginning of the letter of 1 Corinthians, this is why Paul says, I'm going to preach Christ crucified and nothing else. This is the foundation. And what he's saying is, the apostles are following Christ along the Calvary road. But you, Corinthian believers, you think you don't have to do that. That doesn't make sense. What does it mean practically? If you're a follower of Christ, it means that the way of Christ is the way of the cross. And if you want to follow him, it's going to take you away from the glories of the world. And you're going to go through difficulty for the sake of his, his name. If Christ took up the cross, if the apostles took up the cross, why would we think that we're exempt today? If you serve a crucified king, Christ is going to ask you to do things that may seem foolish from the perspective of the world. If you serve a crucified king, it makes sense to give up your time and your treasure to serve those who can't repay you. If it's all a myth and Christ is just a guy, it makes zero sense. Get all you can out of life because it's just not getting better than this. But if you serve a crucified king, you aren't surprised or disheartened when people put you down because you know that your master was put down by the world. It doesn't discourage you or surprise you. You don't worry about it because even your Savior was reviled. But if Christ is just a guy, then you'd better defend yourself at all costs because what that person says about you is what defines you as a person. When we gather as a church, it's not to reinforce our place in a social hierarchy. It's not to make business connections. It's not to earn the respect of men. It's not to be in charge of stuff. It's to take our place at the foot of the cross. Rule of thumb. If we're acting like we're better than the apostles, we're out of line. If the apostles followed Christ in the way of, of the cross, then we must as well. Paul is saying, remember your place. You aren't the king or the queen. We have a king, and you're not him. Thirdly, Remember your place, you aren't the judge or the jury, you aren't the king or the queen, but thirdly, remember your place, you aren't the daddy or the mommy. You aren't the daddy or the mommy. Look at verses 14 and following. Paul says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. My aim in life isn't just to make you feel bad. I'm writing to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Uh, Mandy and I, throughout our marriage, we've never lived near our family. And so when our kids were young, uh, if we wanted to go somewhere without the kids, we would have to hire a babysitter. Some of you are in that stage of life right now. You have certain people you rely on to watch the kids when you need a few hours without them. Uh, and if you ever dealt with babysitters, you understand that sometimes our kids have a very specific difficulty when mom and dad are away and the babysitter is in charge, someone who's just five or ten years older than the kids, someone who doesn't know which cabinet has the plates and which drawer has the knives and the spoons, someone who doesn't know all the house rules, what's the temptation for our children? 
The temptation for a precocious child is to get a little bossy, right? To get a little taste of power. To start lording it over the siblings. And I know some of you are thinking, which kid was it? Which one of his kids had the biggest struggle with this? If I wanted you to know, I would tell you. Okay? But we all know what, what I'm talking about. Babysitters are in charge. The temptation is for the kids to get bossy. To forget their place. Here's what Paul is saying. You've had countless guides. Translation. You've had a lot of babysitters. But don't forget, daddy's coming home. You've only got one spiritual father. Thank you for emphasizing that point. (laughs) Now, think about Paul's meaning here. Think about what it means to say, everyone look over here. Now everyone look back at me, all right? (laughs) We can move on. We can do it. What is Paul saying? When he says you only have one spiritual father. Think about what that means. It's a powerful image. A couple things that means. As father, first of all, he shares the same nature as his children. Have you thought about that? Paul's no different by nature from the Corinthian believers. He's human. They're human. He's a sinner. They're sinners. He was made holy and set apart for Christ. They were made holy and set apart for Christ. So he's not saying I'm any different from you in kind. We share the same nature. But secondly, Paul has tender affection for the Corinthians. He could have said, hey, you only have one boss, but he doesn't say that. He says, you only have one father. I have tender compassion for you because you're my children. He identifies so closely with them that their success is his success. But thirdly, as father, he's also an authority in their life. Now, let me just say as an aside, I don't think this can rightly be applied to pastors or missionaries or uh, ministers today. I think Paul's fatherhood is tied to his role as an apostle. This is why you don't call me, and, and I don't mean to be unkind to other faith traditions, but there's a reason why we don't call our pastors Father Jake or Father Andrew or Father so-and-so. It's because we see in Scripture that that's reserved for an apostolic ministry. So Paul isn't saying that all the pastors and all the leaders are like your fathers. He's, he's putting himself in a different place. But Paul, here's the point. Over and over, Paul calls upon us to follow his example. This is essentially what Timothy is going to provide by proxy. It, it, T- Timothy must have been the one carrying this letter to the church in Corinth. And Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy, and you can see his example of faith. And, and when you watch him, it's almost like you're watching me, even though I'm not there. But notice how beginning in verse 18, he sort of sharpens his tone with these transitional verses that are going to wrap up everything he said to this point and really introduce what's going to come next in the next major section of the letter. He says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Like, I just got a voicemail on my phone from the babysitter who said, some of you are trying to lord it over your siblings and you're trying to get a little bossy and you've forgotten your place. Some are arrogant, and you're saying that I'm not coming to you. And he says, I am coming. You need to remember you aren't the mommy or the daddy. And when dad gets home, there's going to be a reckoning. And Paul says, what's it going to be? Should I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Like, should I come home with an extra dessert from the restaurant, or do I need to bring the wooden spoon? 
Okay? You understand what he's saying. In contexts like ours, we tend to think of the church as a democratic institution. The power doesn't lie with the clergy. We're not a pastor-ruled church, thank God. We're not an elder-ruled church, thank the Lord. The elders have very limited authority. The deacons don't have decision-making power. The denomination can't tell us what to do. We can just leave if we don't like the denomination's decision. So who's in charge of Indian Creek Baptist Church? Who has the power? It's we the people, right? That, that's the temptation for us to say. That, that it's in the congregation that all the power resides, whether by casting a ballot or voting with our feet or our wallet. We are a self-governed, self-directed entity led by the will of the majority. And I just need to say that that's not the case according to the scriptures. That is absolutely not the case. This church is not a democracy. It is absolutely a dictatorship. We have a king. All of us, you and me, are his subjects. You say, Pastor Jake, we don't like it when you teach fill in the blank. Okay, thanks for sharing. But what I teach isn't up for vote if Jesus tells me to teach it. So the question is, does Jesus tell you to teach that? That's something we can talk about. But it's not, I don't like it, you don't get to say it. It's not a democracy, it's a dictatorship. Jesus is in charge. We ask, is that what the Bible says? In other words, I'm not trying to get out of accountability. Accountability is very important, and I need it. All of the leaders of God's church need it. I'm just trying to point out that we're all accountable to the same person. Just because I or the other elders might be uh, might just be guides or babysitters, so to speak, doesn't mean that anyone else in this room is the mommy or the daddy. Let's all remember our place. We're not the mommy or the daddy. I can tell you right now that if all of us really lived like Ch King Jesus were really present in his church because he is, he sends his Holy Spirit to live in our midst, if we really believe that all of our talents and abilities and circumstances were a gift and not something we earned, if we really believe that he's coming soon and will hold all of us accountable, if we really subjected ourselves to the way of the cross because we knew that the sufferings of the present aren't worth comparing with the glories of future grace, then here's what would happen to divisions and bickering and quarreling in the church. If we really thought all of that, if we really believed it, those quarrelings, those fights, those divisions, they would go away like that. We wouldn't have them. Maybe there's somebody, uh, I, I wonder if you're, just, you're here today and, and the Holy Spirit is making it clear to you, perhaps, that you've forgotten your place. I don't know. You've made your relationship to God's people more about your status than about your Savior. More about being served than serving. More about controlling others in the present than about being commended when the Lord returns in the future. Maybe there's somebody specific that you've had a problem with and you know your pride has gotten in the way, your self-righteousness has gotten in the way, and it's caused a rift, a rift between you and that person and the Holy Spirit is showing you right now it's because of your pride, it's because of you forgetting your place. I just want to challenge you in this moment to humble yourself, seek the face of God, and then in a moment, I want to challenge you to make it right and seek the face of your neighbor. 
take another step right here in this moment of worship to seek your brother or sister's face and say, hey, I need to ask you to forgive me. I've been proud. I've forgotten my place. I've taken my seat up on the judge's bench. I've taken my chair up on the throne. I have acted like I'm the mom or the dad, and I've forgotten that I'm not. Would you please forgive me? I've handed down the verdict on you, and that's not right. That's not my place. I've been the king or the queen and made it all about me. I've been the dad or the mom, and I've tried to be in charge of the church, and I want to let it go. And I just have to believe, since Paul said, this isn't just the Corinthian church. This letter is for all everywhere who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that this message is for you, and this message is for me. Is the Holy Spirit convicting you of some division, some rift caused by your pride? Let's not let it go another day. Let's make it right today.